Good afternoon. Thank you once again for joining me. Julian Campbell here. We've got another interesting show lined up for you this week. A bit later in the program, we'll have our Minute on Innovation. Today, we're going to have a look at a couple of local innovative companies and some products that they're producing. We're also talking with Tony Vidray from AV Chartered Accountants about some of the things that the ATO are going to target we need to be aware of. Right now, we're going to have a chat with John Woodward, a partner with Turnbull Hill Lawyers, and we're going to talk about the Personal Property Security Act. Good afternoon, John. Hi, Julian. How are you? I'm very well. Thanks for joining us again. You're welcome. And uh, now this Personal Property Security Act, I believe, I mean, it's been around for a while, but there were some major changes occurred a little bit earlier this year or late last year, didn't they? Um, there have been some changes. I'm not across the uh, the full detail of all those. The, the Act has only really been in place for about um, uh, 12 months, I think. Came in uh, well, 18 months. It came in January um, last year. Mm. Um, look, I, just speaking about the Act generally, I've got to say that um, probably one of the first things that people need to understand about it is that it's it's really quite complex and um, it's. Uh, I, often not easily understood by the average person in the street because when you get down to the detail of it, most of the issues around it are often three-way disputes between owners, lessees, security holders and um, people like the bank and so on. But what is important, I think, for us to do is to to spell out a, a couple of areas where people might need to be aware of, that's all. Absolutely. So so what does the Act uh, actually talk about? All right, well, what it does is, is to... Um, redefine the way that that we've traditionally thought about ownership of personal property. Now, I say personal property because the Act doesn't apply to land and real estate. Mm -hmm. Um, There are some other exceptions, which uh, are minor exceptions, and I won't talk about those. But, um, look, traditionally, we've, in this country, have considered the rights of ownership derived from title, so that if we've paid for something uh, from its true owner... um, and it becomes our property and remains our property, so that even if it's taken away from us and we no longer have possession of it, it remains our property and we can sue um, to recover it because we own it. Mm. Now, um, that concept has been replaced uh, by a system of registration so that entitlement to possession or an interest in personal property is now determined according to registration on a register called the Personal Property Security Register, or the PPSR as it's called. Now the idea is that that if you buy something, and and just for the sake of an example, we'll talk about a car, which is um, something familiar to most people, buying a car on finance. Um, In order to have an interest in the car, the person providing the finance has to register the interest on the PPSR, on the register. Mm. Now, say just say, for example, um, that the car was part of um, your business and you acquired it um, under lease, then the lease would have to be registered under Section 13 of the Act. And um, say, for example, that um, the company car, we'll call it, um, was part of assets which were um, given or, or, or used as collateral to supply bank finance for the running of the business, then you could very well end up in um, a dispute between the bank and you and the lessor of the motor vehicle as rela- in relation to who's entitled to the vehicle. Mm. Because what happens if the business failed 
and the bank appoints a receiver, then there's this three-way, or at least two-way tug-of-war about who has priority. And then it, and then it goes back to the register to see... Uh, they go it's... back to the register. Now, now that, that problem has actually um, recently been the subject of some judicial uh, comment in a case that was decided in the Supreme Court um, on the uh, 28th of June, um, where there was some um, excavation equipment um, in uh, in the Northern Territory, and um, there was there was that exact that precise problem was considered by the court, and um, what had happened in that case was that the lease of the vehicle of the this um, industrial equipment had not been registered under the Act. Um, and in fact, it had been listed on an inventory of assets which had been supplied to a financier to supply other finance. And when the company that owned the vehicle, that leased the vehicles, um, when they got to the point of um, the, they became insolvent and a receiver was appointed, um, the receiver came in and, and, and uh, the, the lessor of the vehicle said, well, you can't have those because they're, they're leased. And the receiver said, "Yes, we can because the leases haven't been registered, and and the the um, the, the company owners have used them as as the basis to get finance. Mm. So so um, that became a major problem for the people who thought they owned the vehicles. They very quickly found out they didn't own the vehicles, and they've been ordered by the court to hand them over to the receiver. So, so that's what I mean when we talk about the way in which we think about ownership, because mm. the lessors of those vehicles would have thought that they were the legal owners of them and they were entitled to them. And um, when the leases had expired, if they, the leases weren't paid, that they'd be entitled to take them back. But they've now found that they're not. So I would think that particularly leasing companies and, and the like would be now on top of this and making sure that things were registered on, under the register? Um, Yes, they should be. Um, there, there's a transition uh, period of two years within okay. which people are, um, have been allowed to get um, some things uh, registered. But um, as this case illustrates, you have to be very careful about um, construed and if in doubt, you really... You, you, Need to register. You, Enter the register, enter them in the register, yeah, or certainly obtain advice about it anyway. And of course, that brings up another point that uh, often we supply goods um, and they may not be paid for. We yeah. need to maintain ownership of that by way of yeah. our terms and conditions, don't we? We do indeed. Um, and uh, all those old uh, things that used to be called Ramalpa clauses, retention of title clauses, and so on in general contracts um, can, can still um, have effect. But they're going to be only only to have effect upon the basis of you know how they're actually written down in in the terms of um, agreement or the terms mm. of sale, mm. and those things are registrable interests and they must be registered. Okay. If they're not registered, then you lose um, any claim of title to get them back. So I suppose the the bottom line is um, you need to have um, your documents firstly in registrable form. And secondly, um, you, you need to perfect your security by getting them registered under the Act. Mm. Well, uh, thanks for your advice there again, uh, John. Uh, obviously, the uh, as you say, it's a very complicated Act and people really need to be talking to their lawyers. I do indeed. We'll talk to you again another time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank Bye. you, Julian. Bye-bye. John Woodward there from Turnbull Hill Lawyers talking about 
<laughs> quite a complicated act and we wanted to try and simplify it as much as as we could but it is an important area that we do need to be aware of uh, because uh, as uh, John said there's only been a few cases so far but uh, as those cases come out then the act will become more and more uh, clear. You're listening to Business, The Law and You on 2NURFM 103.7. Time to pop over to our sponsors, AV Chartered Accountants. Have a chat with Tony Vidray. Good afternoon, Tony. Hello, Gillian. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. I'm, I'm good too. I, I wonder if I can get a parody of that song made into uh, Sweet Tax Season. <laughs> <laughs> You must have sat there for three minutes trying to work that one out, did you? I was trying to figure something out for that song, and I thought, I can can get a parody. (laughs) Someone to change the lyrics on that and and, uh, repackage it into a a comedy treat for me. Yeah, you might might be paying a big dollars for that, though. Yeah, yeah, royalties for for the rest of my life, I think. So so the ATO uh, got a little bit of targets out there at the moment. They have. They they issue this uh, pretty much every year, and uh, they've issued what they've what they're going to be targeting, what they're going to be looking for in the 2013-14 uh, financial year. So, as we know, they regular listeners will know they spent about 750 million to 800 million, depending on which report you read, on their new computer system, which is uh, pretty much trawling everything inside and picking up lots of little anomalies. So, the um, what they've issued to us um, to be careful with is. Uh, um, the technical term is Division 7A loans, which I'll explain a little bit in a minute, um, small business capital gains concessions, uh, contractor versus employee arrangements, and undisclosed foreign income. So the Division 7A scenario is a complicated way of saying money that's essentially taken out of the, the family company. And, and so, in my experience, business owners look at their family company and think, um, you know, that money's mine, I can do whatever I like with it. And they're kind of right. They can do whatever they like with it, but uh, they, they have to, to tell the tax office. The, <laughs> they need to understand the flow on tax consequences of taking money out of their company. So what they're targeting is um, interest-free loans. So essentially, companies made profits, tax has been paid on them, cash is built up, and the and the directors say, "All right, well, I'll have me some of that and take it out." So instead of being treated as a dividend or wage or something like that, it's treated as a loan. So um, enter Division Seven A, which has a whole series of complicated rules. To essentially say the upshot of it is that if you do nothing at the end of the financial year um, and you lodge your return, the tax office can actually treat that money that's come out as what's called an unfrank dividend. So in other words, it's just, it's like interest received. It's just mm. an amount and, uh, and they've, they've been pretty successful in the courts um, with, with these sort of cases. And the, the, the consequences, if you can imagine, if someone takes out you know, $50,000 out of their, their company, doesn't do anything about it, and it's treated as a Division 7A loan, $50,000 gets added on to whatever taxable income they had for that financial year. And depending on the tax bracket, that's, a, that's an enormous amount of tax to pay on that. So, so be very, very careful of uh, arrangements before you start taking money out. Make sure you, you're on top of the, uh, the tax treatment of it. That was one of the things Eddie Abid was doing, wasn't it? Sorry? One of the things that Eddie Abid was doing. Eddie Abid was... was it? Well, we don't know. <laughs> I, we, we await... I wait. To, I can't wait to read the the, uh, the tax case on that one. That'll come up on the radar in the next <laughs> few years. I I just think that, uh, yeah, his, his troubles are only just starting. If, if he thinks ICAC was bad, wait till the tax office goes through his family trusts and, and pull, uh, pulls the, follow the, the, uh, follows the money trail. That'll be very, very, uh, very interesting reading. And what about capital gains? Uh... Yeah, capital gains con- um, concessions, um, it's... Uh, it's 
you know, the, the key um, to the, the concessions is in the title. It's small business concessions. There is a limit, and small business, um, you know, is defined as a business turning over less than $2 million. Mm. If you turn over more than $2 million, you've got to jump through a whole series of hoops and probably about 70 se- separate questions that you've got to, um, you know, get right. And one of them, which sometimes, you know, people might find difficult um, um, to... To, um, to meet the test is that your net wealth needs to be less than $6 million. So when you think about it, you know, if you're a small business and, and a lot of mum and dads have got a net wealth of less than, than $6 million, you're going to get it. But if you're pretty close to that limit, you've got to be incredibly careful. And the tax office do um, review these sort of things. So if you're very, very close to that limit, you've got to prove and have market values of assets and all sorts of things. So it, it, And again, we've seen cases through where they've been quite successful um, in winning where... You know, all you needed is uh, a market value to be wrong by a few hundred thousand dollars, and uh, you know, sorry, your net worth is six point one million. You're not entitled to the uh, to these concessions. So mm. they're, they're winning quite a few on those. Well, the other two points, I think, we might leave for next week: contractors, employers, contractors versus employees, and foreign income. And the because... foreign income, yeah, it's a, probably a separate discussion on its own. It's a it's a it's a very big area that the tax office have diverted a lot of resources um, in the, in the past few years to get the. The, um, it's a statement of fact as to whether you're a contractor or an employee. Yep. Okay, so we'll have a chat week. next week. Sure. Okay, thanks Talk for your time. Bye bye. Have a good week. Cheers. Tony Vidray there. We just watch those areas, particularly the uh, Division 7A loans, the capital gains situation. Yes, and at one thirty-one, it's time to pop over to Christina Sikiadis, ideation at work for our minute on. Um, innovation. Good afternoon, Christina. I'm having a stumbling day today, aren't I? Uh, I think it's the cold weather. We're not used to it. I can pronounce uh, Christina Sikiotis now. What is the other words now? (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. It's ideation. Now, now we were at a a seminar the other night and there were some interesting uh, local cases of innovation and we're going to talk a couple of those. Yeah, we are. There was a um, Professor Eileen Doyle, who's the chair of the Hunter Innovations Forum, uh, ran us through a few of the the people that they've supported and who are doing quite well. Um, local groups doing really well in the innovation stakes, and one of them is the Crucible Group. Um, they're a Newcastle-based company, and they've developed a system where they can convert most forms of biomass, and biomass includes things like green waste and contaminated coal, industrial waste and co-products from you know manufacturers and industrial processes. And the system they've developed converts biomass into a combustible gas, which can be used for power generation or heating. Mm-hmm. And the system can also convert biomass into biochar. Now, what I found out was biochar can be added to soils to improve soil function, and it also reduces emissions from the biomass that would otherwise degrade into greenhouse gases. So basically, we've got a really good environmental um, system. The other thing that I found interesting was that the practice of, the, of converting um, biochar, was, is, it's been around for about 2,000 years, and oh. it converts agricultural waste into soil enhancers, and it holds carbon, boosts food security, discourages deforestation, um, and in the process, a fine-grained, highly porous charcoal is created, hence the name, biochar, and that helps retain nutrients um, and water, which I think is fantastic. That's and great. for something completely different, they talked about Flock2, um, which is a software, uh, and it's a, it's a software developed for event management. And if you've ever organised an event, you know what um, the constant the constant lists that are being um, written and, and ticked off. Yeah. Um, and this software provides ticketing, online registration, updates, speaker profiles. Um, it does schedules. It puts venue locations and maps. 
you can make last-minute changes, and you can do it all via a smartphone or a computer. Fantastic. Fantastic. Makes it easy for event organisers like yourself. Yeah, yeah, it does. It's, it's brilliant. Um, and they've already got a high-profile client in, in Australian Rugby Union looking at it, um, and there's a few other high-profile organisations interested as well. Right. Well, thanks for your time again, Christina. We'll have a chat with you again next week. Thanks, Julian. Have a great week. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Christina Sikiatis there with a couple of in- interesting innovations there locally. Well, I ho- thank you for being with me for the last half hour. I hope you've enjoyed the program. Just a couple of points. Over the next week, there's some interesting things happening. First of all, if you're in retail, there's the Retail Growth Program. The Business Growth Centre uh, at Ugdale Road Gateshead is organising a free information session on Monday, the 12th of August, from 4 till 5. Um, to tell you all about the retail growth programs. If you want more details, go to the Business Growth Centre website or 49423133. And also the um, Too Big to Ignore Skyboard is coming to Maitland next week, next Thursday at uh, 7.30 in the morning on Thursday the 15th of August, Steamfest Rally grounds at Maitland, uh, inviting local business owners to show their support for small business because uh, all those voices together really do make big business, don't they? Well, in a moment, Jane Klein will be back with you with more of your easy listening favourites. Next week, we're going to enter the world of tax again with Tony Vidra and have a look at contractors versus employees. We'll have that minute on innovation with Christina and a couple more of those local innovations and other tips to motivate you and improve your business. I'd love your company at the same time for business, the law and you. Until then, have a safe and prosperous week and as Walt Disney once said, the way to get started is to quit talking and begin doing.